Matthew, book of Matthew, chapter 3. I'm calling this the coronation of the king. This is a picture of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, June of 1953. 1953, when she became queen. That is quite the ceremony. If anybody saw the royal wedding, that was pretty, uh, you know, pretty, I don't know what I want to call it, (laughs) pretty extravagant, right? But there is coming a time soon because Queen Elizabeth, she looks great, by the way, and she is 95 years old, 95 years old. There's coming a day very soon where that is going to pass from her to her son, Prince Charles, and there will be a new king on the throne. And I guarantee when that happens, we are going to see some pageantry and like we have never seen before. Uh, It's going to be extravagant. Um, The eyes of the world will turn to that little island of England to watch the monarchy as that takes place. People are really enthralled with royalty, uh, still even in our day, because there's not a whole lot of them left. But There was no pageantry, there was no fanfare when Jesus went out into the wilderness to meet his cousin John. And it was this moment that we're going to read about today that served as the coronation uh, to his ministry. And coronation really just means a crowning ceremony. It's kind of the beginning of that rule. And this ceremony where Jesus came into public view after 30 years of living in relative, you know, obscurity. And last week, Matthew introduced us to a man who Jesus called the greatest ever born of women. Quite the compliment. The man who was chosen by God to break his 400 years of silence. It was him who was prophesied that he would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. A voice crying in the wilderness, make way the, make straight the way of the Lord. And his message was really simple. It was repent. Repent, get your life right, move all the obstacles in your life that are going to keep you from him. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, his coronation is coming. And this herald was no, you know, none other than John the Baptist, of course. Uh, his was a ministry of preparation. It was to get things right. It was to proclaim and to prepare, uh, telling people that the time was short. The king was almost here. They needed to get ready. They needed to separate themselves from the world Right now, because when he gets here, he's going to do the separating. And it'll be the same way when he returns again. When we meet him in the air, there is going to be a great separation. And John said that his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's going to be gathering the wheat into his barn, the believers, into heaven, and the chaff is going to be thrown to the fire. And that's the same message today, that we need to repent, we need to turn from our earthly ways, we need to put our life in line with the Lord because he's coming back. His arrival is imminent, and when he gets here, there's going to be an eternal separation. Um, People were flocking all over Israel to see John, to hear him preach, and to see him preach this message of repentance and to be baptized in the Jordan River. And it was strange because baptism in that culture was very unusual. It was not commonplace. The only people that were using water in uh, religious ceremonies were the priests and the Pharisees. And it was all ceremonial. It was all symbolic. They weren't doing anything to necessarily cleanse themselves inside. And so it would have been something that was very unusual. Uh, Some came earnestly to hear him preach, and other people came just to see the show, which is the reason why when the religious people showed up to hear John, he cut right to the chase, and he said, 
who warned you to flee the coming judgment? Like, why are you guys out here? You guys aren't out here to repent. You guys aren't out here to be baptized. Just because you're a descendant of Abraham, that doesn't give you a free pass. There's no saving seats in the kingdom. It's not about your parents' religion. It's not about just filling a seat on Sundays. It's about having a relationship and being submitted to a real God who knows your name and wants you to know him too. As popular as John was, he said, there is one coming after me who is so much mightier than I that I'm not even worthy to take off his sandals. You can't even wrap your head around how awesome and how majestic this guy is going to be because he is the king of kings. He's not just a king. He is the king of kings. And when he arrives, he's not going to just baptize people in water. He actually has the power to baptize people in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And when the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside you, everybody that has put their faith and trust in Jesus has the Holy Spirit inside of them, and he is going to convict us of sin. He is going to purify us and start to refine that sin out of our life. And that's what John is talking about. He's saying, this is what's on the way. The one who he proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So our text today is going to be Matthew 3, verses 13 through, let's see, we're going to go 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, so far, Matthew has given us the ancestry of Jesus, the arrival, the adoration of the Magi, and the announcement by John, and now we're going to read about his coronation. And so far, we've been, you know, looking at the story through the eyes of other people, but today, Jesus is going to take center stage as his earthly ministry begins to take off, and it begins with baptism. Uh, John's ministry really wasn't that long. Started, you know, perhaps a year less, a year or less before Jesus came on the scene, and ending not long afterwards, as Jesus' ministry was taking off when he said that he must increase and I must decrease. But he made a tremendous impact on the nation in just that short time. Um, you know, we might think, you know, I don't have a lot of influence. I can't make a big impact where I am. Um, I don't have enough time. And you're right. <laughs> In ourselves, we don't have enough time to live for our own glory, to try to build our own thing. Only when Jesus and the Holy Spirit empower it can it impact many for, you know, for Jesus. Um, he wasn't trying to make a name for himself in the big city. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't in the place where everything was happening. He was really out in the boonies. He was out in the desert. And you had to be serious if you wanted to get out to see John. You had to be intentional. Um, Christianity in our country is very convenient. 
It is. Uh, it's very easy. Um, it's easy to stay home and watch videos online. It's easy to listen to podcasts. Uh, it really takes very little effort. Um, and we don't have the intentionality of living out life with a group of other believers. And, you know, podcasts and videos are not a bad thing. They are a good thing. But they can enable a spiritual flabbiness, if I can say it that way, um, not being strong. And we're not called to be Christian couch potatoes. That's not what we're called to. Uh, this is to be an active and intentional relational faith that's lived out as a body. Uh, Paul even writes, when he writes about the body, he said, listen, the ear can't say, you know, to the toe, I have no need of you. Like, it's all working together. We all have to be part of the body, no matter what part of the body you are. We all need to be connected. So here comes Jesus. He's alone. He has no friends with him. He has no family with him. And he hasn't, you know, called out his disciples yet. And he comes to John publicly. Now, I'm sure if he wanted to, he could have arranged a private ceremony with John. That wouldn't have been hard. Uh, he could have said, you know, we don't need all these people around. Let's just do a private ceremony. But it was, it was very public. Uh, not like David's. Um, you know, Jesus is called the son of David. If you remember back, David, at his coronation ceremony, he wasn't even invited when Samuel showed up at Jesse's house. And he said, you know, bring all your sons out here. They didn't even bring David. And he was out with the sheep. And he said, bring David in here. And when he came in, um, he finally uh, had the opportunity to anoint him with oil and say, this is going to be the next king of Israel. I can't imagine his older brothers standing there watching this whole thing happen, saying the baby of the family is going to be the one that takes over in Israel. So Jesus was very public with his coronation. As I mentioned, uh, John and Jesus were second cousins. They were family. Uh, so it's, it's neat to think that they had a really special kind of relationship. Uh, if you've been watching through The Chosen, they really play up on that, that Jesus and John had a special relationship. Uh, but that's not what we're told in the scriptures. We're actually not told that. That's not in the Bible. Uh, as a matter of fact, listen to what it says in John's gospel. Uh, he says this, the apostle John, and this is John the Baptist talking. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the son of God. Now, a lot of Bible scholars believe as I do, that they did in fact know each other pretty well. Um, they would have been probably traveling together to Jerusalem for the feasts. Um, they certainly would have heard a lot about each other from their moms, Mary and Elizabeth, talking about, you know, these instances where the angels had appeared and had prophesied and told them what kind of children these were going to be, about John leaping in his mother's womb when Jesus showed up, talking about their experiences. Just think of the two of them getting together, like Mary and Elizabeth, and you know, Mary asking Elizabeth, how's John doing? Like, well, you know, he's kind of odd. You know, he, we don't see him a lot. You know, he lives in the desert. Um, and then Elizabeth's saying, you know, how's, how's Jesus? He's perfect. <laughs> he's perfect. That would have been an interesting conversation as they got together. So they really would have known each other. I think what John is saying here is at this point, he did not know 
that he was the Messiah, that he was, in fact, God's son. I think that's what he is saying there. Um, but when Jesus walks by, John recognizes him. And that's impressive because that gives us another sign that they did, in fact, know each other because we are told that there was nothing about Jesus that would have drawn people to him. There was nothing extraordinary about him. Uh, he wasn't a foot taller than everybody else, like Saul was. He wasn't head and shoulders above everybody. He wasn't, you know, a supermodel. He wasn't somebody that was incredibly good looking. It tells us he was very ordinary. Uh, there was nothing in him, uh, there was nothing of himself that would have automatically drawn people to him. Uh, that's why when Judas betrayed Jesus in the garden, he told the soldiers, he said, listen, the one that I kiss on the cheek, that's the guy that you need to arrest because they wouldn't have recognized him right away. Even though Jesus had been in Jerusalem, had been in the temple for years, he wasn't easily recognizable. So when John sees him, he knows who he is immediately. Now, it's puzzling when you think about it because we're told that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and cleansing spiritually. So if that was the case, why would Jesus, the only guy who didn't need to be baptized, why would he go through this ceremony? It certainly took John by surprise. Uh, It wasn't like they had this thing worked out ahead of time. And he thought when Jesus was walking out that he was there to baptize him because he tried to prevent Jesus from doing this. He knew that Jesus was going to be part of God's redemptive plan. And his first response to Jesus was, wait a minute, I actually need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. Because John was keenly aware of his own sin nature, but he had never seen, he had never heard of Jesus ever sinning. And you can be sure that if anyone knows how much you need Jesus, it's your family. They're going to know how much you need Jesus, the real you. So John must have been watching him closely as they grew up. That's why he called him the Lamb of God. The lambs that were sacrificed at the temple had to be completely spotless, no flaws at all. And it's because he was fully aware of his own sin that he tried to prevent Jesus from allowing him to baptize him. And he was you know, trying to resist baptizing Jesus for the exact opposite reason that he wasn't going to baptize the Pharisees and the religious people of that day because they're the ones who needed to be baptized, but they weren't willing to ask for it. They weren't willing to receive it. They were in great need. Jesus had no need, but he asked John to do it anyway. Why would a sinless king be baptized? Uh, The word in the Greek here, the verb, is that this was a repeated resistance by John. Uh, It wasn't just once. He was really trying to prevent Jesus from doing this. And Jesus told John, let it be so for now. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I know it seems inappropriate, John, but there's a bigger plan at work here that you don't understand, but you will eventually. It's important for both of our ministries that this take place. God's plan needed to be fulfilled perfectly, and it was necessary that Jesus go through baptism. It was necessary for it to be John. Baptism is part of God's plan for righteousness for every believer. Every believer should be baptized. Uh, Jesus did not need to be baptized, but he chose to be. Um, Interesting, because God does not need you or I, but he chose us. Um, He didn't need humanity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were completely content with one another, completely in harmony, and yet God chose you and me. He loves us, but he doesn't need us. Uh, we've probably all known somebody who uh, was in love and was a very needy person. 
very needy in love. And those people can be a little overbearing. They can cause a lot of anxiety. They can cause a lot of frustration and tension um, because when they're overbearing, they ask questions like, where were you? Or who were you talking to? You know, what were you doing? But God is not needy, if that makes sense. Um, He is inviting. Uh, Jesus was constantly inviting people to follow him. Uh, Interesting, because he did not beg people to follow him. When he asked people to follow them, and they didn't, he did not beg them, but he invited them. And he invited people by saying, all of you who are weary, all of you who are burdened, heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. He doesn't need us, but he loves us, and he calls us into relationship. Four reasons why I believe Jesus was baptized by John. First, it was an affirmation of John's ministry. What John was preaching was valid. Um, Jesus saying, I approve of his service for me. Um, could you imagine if, you, if the king rolled into town and the herald had been there and the king didn't have any idea who the herald was, that there was anyone going before him letting people know? Uh, Jesus was putting his stamp of approval on John's ministry. And he actually started out his ministry with the same message that you needed to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Second, it was an identification with us personally. He who knew no sin took on our sin and died in our place. Uh, He identifies with us in baptism and he sets an example for us to follow. He's modeling obedience to the Father's will. Jesus came into the world to to identify with humanity. And to identify with humanity is to identify with our sin. Now, Jesus was sinless, but the act of baptism identifies us with his death, with his burial, and with his resurrection. Uh, Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12 says this, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was counted with the transgressors, with the sinners. He was identifying with the people that he came to save. Um, He who knew no sin took the place of those who had no righteousness. Thirdly, it was a declaration prophetically. In total submission to the Father's plan, Jesus came to earth to die. His purpose in becoming one of us was to redeem us by his blood through his death on the cross. Listen to what it says about baptism in Romans 6. This is verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we're baptized, we're saying, Lord, I'm submitting my will to yours, and I'm putting faith in you that when I die, I'm going to be raised again right now spiritually, but then also physically when you come back to make all things right. And then verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus is making a declaration prophetically of what's going to happen to him and what's going to follow in his footsteps as we believe in him. That's going to happen to us as well. Fourthly, Jesus' baptism is an illustration of the Trinity. Uh, After Jesus was raised up, we're told that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. 
And then after that, we hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So we have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the Father, all three participating in this act of baptism. Now, doves throughout the scriptures are symbolic of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the dove being a bird of purity. And doves, like lambs, were also part of the sacrificial process. Uh, if you were wealthy in that day, and if you could afford it, you would bring a bull for your sacrifice. If you were part of the middle class, you would bring a lamb. But if you were poor, if you could not afford it, you would bring a pair of doves. And I think it's pretty cool that God made provision for everyone, regardless of your social status, to make sacrifices at the temple. Uh, Basically, as I was thinking about it, I said, you know what? The Holy Spirit, not only is forgiveness available to everybody, but the Holy Spirit is available to everybody because he came in the settled in the form dove, that, that symbolism of a dove that was so accessible to people in that day. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit for his work in ministry. Now, this is an area that people can get tripped up from time to time. Uh, Jesus was fully God, but also fully man. That is a mystery that is very difficult to understand. In his, in his deity, he did not need anything. But in his humanness, he did. And we know this because Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, if you remember back to when we went through the book of Philippians, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. When God became man to identify with us, he emptied himself. He did not empty himself of his divinity. Uh, that would be impossible. He never emptied himself of his divinity. He only emptied himself of his divine powers, his divine prerogatives. He submitted his will to the Father. Uh, Some religions think that Jesus was simply a man. He was just a man like us, but at his baptism, when he was anointed, then he was imparted the Christ consciousness or the Christ spirit. And there is actually an ancient text that suggests that Jesus was only baptized because his mother and his brothers uh, were begging him to do it. They were going out to see John, and they said, listen, you should be baptized too. Come with us. And so to appease his mom and to appease his family, he went out and became baptized. So that would be false. He did not. Uh, He has always been, and he always will be God. But he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives meaning that he is now reliant on the moving and the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit to live his life in ministry. Uh, He was anointed and empowered at baptism. See, I always used to think that when I read the Bible and I read of Jesus performing miracles and, you know, healing people, saying, well, of course, of course, he healed people. Of course, he lived a sinless life like he's God. But what it's telling us that he emptied himself. He would not have been able to fully identify with humanity if he didn't have to, you know, live a sinless life by emptying himself of his divine powers. It wouldn't have been unique. It wouldn't have been special at all if he hadn't emptied himself and become one of us. He was the perfect spotless lamb because he lived this life fully human, reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit to lead him every step of the way. And when he entered the synagogue, uh, he entered the synagogue one day to teaching and he was handed the scroll of Isaiah and he reads his mission statement, his purpose, the whole reason why he came. And he reads Isaiah 61, 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I like the way it says that in this translation, the opening of the prison to the bound, because he has opened the prison, but you got to walk out of it. You're the only one that can keep yourself in bondage because Jesus has already opened the prison. The Spirit was on him because the Lord had anointed him, and it was given in a very public, very visible way. Uh, as a confirmation to John, as a confirmation to all the people who were gathered there that he was indeed the Messiah. Now, when we try to live this life in our own strength, we fail. Uh, we fail because we do not have the power in ourselves to overcome sin, and we certainly don't have the power in our lives to intercede for others the way that we should, or cast out demons, or heal people. To live the Christian life, we need the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, or it's just going to be a works-based religion, and you're going to have a lot of frustration, a lot of anxiety, because you're just trying to follow the rules. But we need the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, because once we're saved, the Holy Spirit actually dwells inside of us, but the real question is, does the Holy Spirit have you? We have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have you? We have the Holy Spirit, but if you want the Holy Spirit to come upon you, you do need to press in. You do need to search for it. You do need to ask for it. Uh, Jesus said, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to those who ask the gift of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit was upon Jesus to preach, to heal, to release captives, to do ministry. And last week I said that we're not all called to be evangelists, but we all are called to be witnesses and to do ministry. As Jesus was raised out of the water, the Holy Spirit anointed him. And then we hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So again, we have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit all participating in this act of baptism. And the Greek word for beloved here is agapetos. From the word we get agape. We all know the word agape. It's that rich, it's that perfect, it's that supernatural love. And we can only agape people if we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Uh, God at this point is declaring his approval on Jesus of his spotlessness, of his sinlessness. Um, John called Jesus the Lamb of God. Uh, I found a note uh, after our Christmas Eve service that I thought was really cool that the ceremonial lambs that were used at the temple, um, that the priest used at the temple that they sacrificed, were only to come from the flocks at Bethlehem. Isn't that a really cool detail that it gives us? There is a, a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament called the Mishnah, and it says in there that the lambs are only supposed to come from flocks in and around Bethlehem. He's supposed to be spotless. They had to be inspected and approved. They couldn't have any flaws at all. But no Old Testament sacrifice could ever be truly pleasing, could never be truly satisfying because there was none of them that was truly spotless, none of them that could be the final sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. He was given a body. And God the Father says he was well pleased with the obedience and the perfection of Jesus. And because you and I are now in Christ, when he looks at us, he sees us as spotless. So we have the Son being baptized, we have the Holy Spirit descending, and we have the Father proclaiming his approval. Um, The Trinity has actually been whispered since the first verse of the Bible, where it says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And the word for God there is the word Elohim. Now, El is the singular word for God, but Elohim is plural, more than one. And in Genesis 1.26, it says, let us make man in our image. It's a mystery. People have used all kinds of symbolism to try to explain the, you know, the Trinity uh, from water. You know, water can be frozen, it can be liquid, it can be vapor, or the egg mentality where you have the shell and the yolk and the other stuff that you make omelets out of. I don't know. But all of those really aren't sufficient to explain or try to symbolize what the Trinity is, and that's, that's okay. I'm okay with that. It's impossible to comprehend. But it's clearly demonstrated throughout the scriptures, and we have it perfectly presented to us here in this scene at the Jordan River. And when we look at the scene, we can't help but look back and think about a couple thousand years earlier, um, a man who was surrounded by water, a man whose name literally meant comforter. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the comforter. He said, when I leave, I am going to send another comforter to you. And a couple thousand years before Jesus, we have the man we know as Noah, And Noah was surrounded by a world that was corrupt and defiled, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he told Noah, he said, I'm going to drown out this wicked, evil world. And in sending the flood, God was just doing quickly what humanity was doing very, very slowly, and humanity was destroying itself, caught up in the occult and all kinds of a perversion. So God sent the flood, it rained for 40 days, and it tells us that as the water was beginning to recede, as you could see the tops of the mountains, after 40 days, another 40 days, he sent out a raven. He sent out a raven because ravens are scavengers. They feed on dead things. There would have been quite a few dead things around for the ravens to scavenge on, and the raven didn't come back. So he sends out the dove, and it says that the dove found no place to put its feet the pure dove comes back to Noah and he brings it in. So it's like he's surrounded by water, there is death, and then there is newness of life. And the Holy Spirit um, descended on Jesus and this dove descends to Noah. And then eventually he sends it forth and he brings, and, the, and the dove brings back the olive leaf. Uh, it's a picture of baptism. Death of the sinful world around us and a resurrection to newness of life. First Peter 3.20, Peter tells us that this whole event was a picture of baptism. It says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then there's another man who was surrounded by water, who was baptized radically, whose name literally means dove, 
And he didn't take a cruise above the water. He took a dive underneath the water. A guy by the name of Jonah, he was fully immersed. He wasn't sprinkled. Jonah's baptism wasn't a drowning of the world around him, but a drowning of the selfishness and rebellion inside of him. See, Jonah had his own agenda. He said, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going another way. But through his baptism, he surrendered his will. So baptism is about separating and cleansing ourselves from the world outside, but it's also about surrendering our will internally. Baptism saying, Lord, I will go wherever you say to go. I will do whatever you want me to do, whatever that might mean, because I trust you and because you are my king. Some people think to themselves, well, that's fine theoretically, but I was baptized like six years ago or 16 years ago. And since then, I have really blown it. I mean, I've failed. I have sinned. I have not lived up to what I said when I was baptized, that I wanted to die to the sin in my life, and I wanted to walk in newness of life. Well, you're in good company, because so did Noah. After emerging from the ark, one of the first things that he did was plant a vineyard. And he raised some grapes, and he made some wine. And unfortunately, one day he got drunk. He passed out in his tent, and his boys found him, and it led to all kinds of problems that are still being felt to this day. That sinfulness that God was eradicating in Noah's world resurfaced in him. And what about Jonah? Of course, we know his story. After his baptism, after his desperate prayer inside the fish, the fish that spit him up on dry land, he goes to Nineveh and he preaches the most basic message that you can, you know, that you could preach. It's basically a turn and burn, turn or burn, turn or burn message. You know, after 40 days, God's going to destroy this place. And he witnesses the greatest revival in world history. Hundreds of thousands of people repent and turn and believe in God. And what does Jonah do? He went up to the top of the hill because he wanted to see the fire and brimstone. He wanted to see these people destroyed, these people that had been so wicked, especially to his people. And he gets angry with God because God delivers them. Because they repented, he gets ticked off at God. He said, I knew it. I knew you would do this because you are merciful. You are merciful and you forgive people, forgave Jonah (laughs) for running away, but he gets upset with God. He failed because all of that selfishness that was supposed to be drowned out of him in his baptism resurfaced. It reemerged. So during Noah's baptism, it rained for 40 days. And after Jonah walked into Nineveh, he said that in 40 days, judgment is coming. That number 40 in the Bible is symbolic of testing. And following Jesus' baptism, the Spirit led him out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. And although all three of them had trial, only one of them walked away victorious. Only one made it out successfully. Only one was baptized and moved on to complete victory. It wasn't the prophet Jonah, and it wasn't the man of faith Noah. It was our king, Jesus. Jesus overcame his 40-day trial in the desert in being tempted by Satan. Um, He didn't fail. And because of his victory, our baptism says, not only am I dying to the sin around me, and not only am I dying to the sin within me, but most importantly, it says, I'm putting my faith, I'm putting my trust in the one who died for me. And when we're baptized, obviously it doesn't mean that we're not going to sin anymore, that we're going to be perfect. Uh, It means that we acknowledge that we are perfectly forgiven and that we're perfectly loved and that Jesus paid the price for every sin that we've ever done are doing, or ever will do in our lives. He's victorious 
through those 40 days of testing, and now he lives inside of us. Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's him living inside of you and me. Now all we have to do is just live by faith. Uh, That's the gospel. I can't do it, but he's already done it. And when God looks at me, because we're in Jesus, he sees his son. We are now robed in his righteousness, the righteousness that he bought for us on the cross. Um, We need to let the world drown out of us and rise above it. We need to die to our selfishness and our rebellion and walk in newness of life. And when we fail, because we do, we still do, we still fail often, daily, we need to repent and we need to be restored and we need to rest in the fact that he was the one that was victorious. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And we have been perfectly forgiven, so we need to enjoy salvation. Uh, We're not to let Satan turn us into a sour saint. You know, we're not supposed to be the frozen chosen. Uh, We're supposed to walk in victory. We shouldn't be walking around in anxiety and fear. There's a lot of anxiety and fear right now. We should not be those that are walking around in fear. Uh, We shouldn't be burdened with guilt. Uh, I heard someone this week say, when fear comes sniffing around your mind, just give it the Heisman. You know, just give it the stiff arm. Give it the Heisman when it comes sniffing around. Trust in the one who came through victorious. You guys can come ahead and come on out. If you haven't followed the example of our Savior in baptism, I would strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, We have a baptismal. (laughs) We can make it happen. Uh, We had a baptism this summer at the picnic. It was awesome. It was wonderful. Uh, We actually have a horse trough. So... It ain't fancy, but we can dunk you in water. You can follow the Lord in baptism. Um, We are commanded to go through baptism. Now, do you need to be baptized to go to heaven? No. Um, You know, know, fortunately, uh, the the thief on the cross that was hanging next to Jesus, uh, when he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, uh, Jesus didn't say, gosh, you know, I I wish we had done this beforehand because I could have baptized you. Uh, But no, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, You don't have to be baptized to go to heaven, but we need to follow in the example of Jesus. We do need to pursue all righteousness. He said, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. It's part of God's plan for us. I read this quote this week. It said, baptism is like a precious jewel set apart by itself. It's nice and appealing, but has nothing within it to compel. But place baptism against the backdrop of our sin and turn on the light of the cross and the jewel explodes with significance. Baptism in and of itself looks like a strange ritual. But when you place it against the backdrop of our sin, how broken we are, and we look at it through the light of the cross, when we put the cross in front of us and what that represents, the jewel explodes with significance. Baptism, when we look at it, Our death, resurrection, walking in newness of life, you know, being able to identify with our Savior in that way is what he came to do and to show us what was going to happen prophetically that when we die to this world, we are going to be resurrected and live with him forever. That is the hope of the Christian. That is the reason why we walk through this broken world and we can say, you know what? 
My situation may not be what I want it to be right now, but that's okay. I can make the choice to rejoice because my Savior's already done all the, you know, all the impossible work that I couldn't do. And all we have to do is just rest in his victory. Heavenly Father, we are blown away by your goodness. We can't comprehend how you became one of us so that you could speak to us, so that you could relay how much you want to have relationship. You want us to be connected to you, to forsake the world, to have it drowned out of us, to be separate, to be called away. God, help us to walk that out as we leave, as we walk out those doors, to be those that um, not only are separated, but are witnesses to your goodness, that we would live in such a way that people would notice and would ask us, why are you different? Why aren't you worried? Why aren't you anxious about what's going on? And we just say we have peace because we have Jesus as our Savior. Lord, just wash us clean anew today. Restore to us the joy of our salvation, we pray in Jesus' name.